Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for the good word that you have put before us. Lord, we thank you for the way that it thrills our hearts, for the way that it shows us the good way, the old way, the way that you yourself will protect and bless. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to recognize that this is the way and we should walk in it. So Lord, do your work by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus to make us those who are ultimately and pervasively committed to seeing your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in all this, Lord, cause us, those, cause us to be those who want your name to be hallowed above all. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning to Psalm 127. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's probably one in the pew back before you. I would encourage you to follow along with us as we go through Psalms 127 and 128 today. This week, um, in, in our times of family devotion, at night before we put the kids to bed, we will often read the passage of Scripture that will be preached here at Kenwood the Sunday before, or the, the following Sunday, and I would just insert a little application to the husbands and fathers here. Uh, guys, step up and lead your families in family worship. It's your responsibility. So, you know, the, the church newsletter comes every Tuesday. The passage that is going to be preached is, is presented to you there. Take hold of it. Call your family together at some appropriate point whether it's after dinner, before you go to bed, whatever, read the passage and uh, prepare your family for worship and ingrain the scriptures in your lives. You don't need a Toronto psychoanalyst to tell you to step up and be a man, okay? Your pastor's doing it. If you, I'm talking about Jordan Peterson, this guy that's all the rage in the culture. Um, step up, be a man, lead your family, uh, read the passage to your kids and your, and your wife, do it. it. It will change your life to saturate your family in the scriptures. Okay, so we're doing this this week, and um, I read Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And we stop, and I say to my kids, is there, is there a passage, which I skipped the first part, let me, let me back up a little bit, Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. So the first thing we did was I said, who was Solomon? David's son, right? He succeeded David as king, right? Good. And then unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Is there a, a, another passage in the Bible that talks about a house with reference to David and Solomon? Yeah, there's another passage in the Bible. 2 Samuel 7, right? And what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Well, this is very important. David wanted to build a house... For the Lord. And the Lord said, and my kids, my kids start filling in. I mean, you know, David couldn't do it. He was a man of blood. He killed too many people. He fought too many battles. He defiled himself. David couldn't do it. Right. And the Lord said, what to David? I will raise up your seed after you, 
and he will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And even before that, the Lord had said to David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. All of that is relevant in a psalm of Solomon, David's son, talking about a house being built, isn't it? So what house are we talking about unless the Lord builds the house? Well, I think this is poetry, not an engineering manual. It's not a mathematics textbook. So I think there are multiple things in view here. First and foremost, perhaps, we're talking about the temple. And that kind of keys us into where we are in, in the Psalms, in the flow of thought in the Psalms. Psalm 127 is a song of ascents. And all of 120 through 134 are songs of ascents. And we've talked about how in book five of the Psalms, which is Psalms 107 through 150, we're, we're probably projected into the future, dealing with future hopes. These are poems that are evocative, not only of things present and things past, but also things future. And, and I think they're de we're, we're looking into here what we're expecting when God has accomplished the future salvation that's going to be brought about by the future king from David's line, the one he was talking about in Psalm 110, when David said, the Lord says to my Lord, the, the future king from his line, and then he makes all these great statements to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this future king from David's line, he's going to reign forever. And then in, in these Psalms of Ascent, we've been talking about how probably after this great act of salvation, as the people stream home to, to the land of promise, as they, as they make their pilgrimage, sojourning toward the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, the, the new and better land, the new and better Eden, where the, the holy of holies, the new Jerusalem, is the capital city. As they make their way, they're going to sing these songs. And so, first and foremost, they're probably thinking about the new temple, the new and better temple that's going to be rebuilt. We'll, we'll talk about what that's fulfilled in. Well, I'll just go ahead and tell you. I think that's fulfilled in uh, the New Jerusalem because at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, the city of Jerusalem comes down from heaven out of God, uh, uh, comes down from God out of heaven, and it's a perfect cube, which it, it, that's the, those are the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. And we're told there, there will be no temple uh, for the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. They are the temple. So the, the whole earth is going to be the temple. And the city where the king reigns is going to be like the Holy of Holies, okay? So the whole world is God's temple. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If the Lord is not in the project of building the cosmic temple, those who build it labor in vain. And then here's another level of, of meaning, I think. God said to David, I am going to build you a house. And you look down to verse 3. And in this Psalm of Solomon, he's saying, behold, children, and, and the Hebrew here is sons, sons is inclusive probably, but sons, line of descent, that's what God is talking about when he says to David, I'm going to build you a house, I'm going to give you a dynasty, a line of descent that's going to culminate in this king who's going to reign forever. So temple, yes, Davidic dynasty, that, that works its way down through those genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 to Jesus, yes. And then by, by extension, application, 
You know, as these people return from exile, what are they going to do? They're going to rebuild their homes. They're going to rebuild where they live. So yes, I think that's included. But we shouldn't leave out those earlier two things, the temple and the house of David. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Uh, one way to, to render this, this, this phrase, in vain, would be to say um, those who uh, build it, they, they accomplish only emptiness. Emptiness. If, if, if God is not the power behind your work, the motivation for your work, the ultimate goal of your work, and if his standards are not applied in your work, you know what you're doing? You're filling up emptiness. That's all you're doing. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Look at the next line there of Psalm 127 in verse 1. Unless the Lord watches over the city. city. And the word here that's, that's translated watches over is elsewhere translated in the Bible, keeps. So we could say, unless the Lord keeps the city, those who watch or those who stand guard keep in vain. So twice here we got this word, Hebrew verb, shamar, which means keep. Is that word, again, this is what we went through in our family devotions. Is, do we have that word keep anywhere else in the Bible about somebody supposed to be protecting something? Yeah, Adam was supposed to work and keep the Garden of Eden. Are there connections between the Garden of Eden and Jerusalem and the temple? Absolutely. This is the place where God dwells, right? If, if God doesn't keep the place, those who try to do so keep it in vain. I, I think Solomon has in view here the way, that, the way that Adam failed to keep the serpent out. And then once the serpent had gotten in, the way that Adam failed to engage the serpent and expel him from the garden. And I think what he's saying is something like this. If God is not the one who is empowering and, and enabling the keeping of his place, human toil, human effort, human attempts, emptiness. That's what you got. Now, let's just keep doing this. Is there another place in the Bible where Solomon talks about how human effort Human toil is emptiness. Ecclesiastes, right? Different language. There we've got this word hevel, which is it's the, it's also the Hebrew for Abel's name, which means vanity or, you know, something like meaninglessness or something like that. Here we've got this word shav, which is just a synonym. It means emptiness or, or in vain here. Solomon is saying, if your efforts are not empowered by the Lord, if your purposes are not in line with God's purposes, even if you're trying to do good things, it's emptiness, it's vanity. And he continues in this vein in verse 2. He says here, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. And we know what he's talking about, don't we? People, people that, that say to themselves, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this done. So they set their alarms early, and then they try to keep themselves up late. And, and they're committed. They're, they're, they're expending great effort on these projects. And Solomon says, it's in vain that you do this. 
It's in vain that you do. If the Lord is not in it, it's emptiness. And then look at what he says next there in verse 2. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, this is not so apparent in, in, in uh, English, but in Hebrew, the, the terminology here is, is terminology that's familiar from, uh, I mean, we've already seen, I think, allusions to Genesis 2 and 3. This is terminology familiar from Genesis 3, 16 and 17. The word translated toil here is the word that, that, that means pain in Genesis 3, 16. In pain, the woman will bring forth children. It's also the word that means that, that Adam is going to eat bread or, or he's going to eat what results from his painful toil in Genesis 3, 17. So I think Solomon here is, is pointing the minds of his audience back to the narrative of the fall and the words of judgment in Genesis 3. And he's saying, look, if, if all you're doing is trying to accomplish merely horizontal, merely human, merely this-worldly efforts that are disconnected from the knowledge of God and God's purposes in the world, if that's what you're after, you know what you get? You get Genesis 3, 16 and 17. You get painful childbirth. You get painful toil. The word eat and the word for pain here is, is, is uh, or the word rendered anxious toil here. They're both in Genesis 3, 17. That's all you're going to wind up with. And what Solomon is saying is, there's a better way. There's a better way to live. And he hints at that at the end of verse 2, where he says, For he gives to his beloved sleep. You know what? Not everything is spelled out here, but there's a lot that's implied here, isn't there? What's implied here is God's beloved, which aren't those st staggering words? God's beloved. Did, did you hear it in Colossians 3 also? Since then, as beloved children. It's, it's the way that Paul writes to the, the Christians in Rome. He tells them that they are beloved of God. It's, it's really astonishing. You, you don't get this in Hinduism. The Hindu, the Hindu gods don't love people. They don't have beloveds. You don't get this in Islam. Allah doesn't love people. He, you will not find language like this in the Quran. You don't get this anywhere else. This idea that the living God, we were talking the last time we were, the men were together on Tuesday morning, we were talking about who God is. And, and I was elaborating on this, this catechism question, what is God? And the answer is God is infinite. God is infinite. There are no boundaries to him. There are no limits on him. Eternal. He has no, he has no limitation on either duration or the, the fact that he has to experience things in sequence. He's eternal. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. There's nothing in him that's going to change ever under any circumstances or in response to anything. He is immutable. And he is wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That God addresses people as his beloved. This is astonishing. This is astonishing. We don't deserve to be beloved of God. We do not deserve this. This is an overflow of infinite kindness and mercy and goodness and love. 
and he gives to his beloved sleep. You know what this is? This is a compressed, tight, poetic line. And what it's communicating is something like this. When you experience the love of God, when you experience the knowledge of God, you come to know that, I have, that, that you have to operate within human boundaries. And you come to accept the fact that these human boundaries, these human limitations exist, and you embrace it because God created you. And what you're going to do is you're going to work and live in integrity, and you're going to do your work with, with as much excellence as you can achieve, and then what you're going to do is you're going to go to sleep, and you're going to rest, and you're going to trust God to give the growth. You're going to plant the seed, and then you're going to go to bed. You're going to, you're going to do as much work as you can get done, I'll never forget hearing C.J. Mahaney talk about this aspect of humility. He said, only God gets to the end of the day and has completed his to-do list. Everybody else gets to the end of the day and there's more to be done. There's more that we wish that we could have accomplished and we couldn't accomplish it. But when we know God, what we do is we say, I've done all I can do in the day. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to trust the Lord. And I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to go to sleep. And I'm recognizing that I'm a... Don't be a fool, a fool. Don't be somebody that thinks you can get away without sleeping. If you try to get away without sleeping, I can guarantee you several things that are going to happen. Number one, you're going to be cranky. Number two, you're, going to, you're probably going to be mean and grumpy to the people around you. Number three, you're probably going to wind up committing sin that if you had gone to bed, you would not have been tempted by. So don't be a fool and think that you don't need sleep. Just last night, I read this article about this guy who, um, when he was 17 years old, he decided to break the world record on sleeplessness. So he went 11 days without sleeping. The rest of his life, the, the article says, he suffered with unbearable insomnia. He messed himself up. He went 11 days awake and he messed his life up. Look at the words here of Psalm 127, verse 2. He gives to his beloved... Sleep. Sleep is a gift from God. It's a gift that's enjoyed in the context of people that know God and people who can rest in Him. It's beautiful. Okay, so verses 1 and 2, uh, notice how they're tied together by this, this refrain, it's in vain, unless the Lord builds the house of those who build it labor, in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake, in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sweet sleep. We're going we're gonna to go in a new direction now in verse 3. Verse 3 is kind of like the hinge verse. We're, we're working our way down to verse 3, and now we're going to work our way out from verse 3. And at this hinge verse... Uh, it's, it's interesting how, how we get a contrast with things that are in vain and empty and something that is lasting, something that's a heritage in verse 3. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage. We might, you could render this word inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Children are a heritage and a reward, an inheritance and a bonus, we might say. Children are. And, and heritage and, and inheritance, these, these are things that, that are like passed down through the generations, which is what children are, right? It's the next generation. So it's something that's going to last in contrast with vanity and emptiness. Why would he say this? 
Well, again, this is Psalm 127. This is a song of, a song of Solomon, a, a song of ascents. And um, Solomon is talking about the house that the Lord is going to build. And so the house, yes, we got connotations of the temple. We've also got connotations of the Davidic line of descent. And then there are also these realities. It never, it never ceases to surprise me that when you open the Bible and you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God makes man and woman, the first thing he does is surprises, surprising. And, and if, if you think in human terms or if you study the world's religions, this will become all the more surprising because none of the gods do this in, in the other creation accounts. The, 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 the sort of behind-the-scenes God doing the natural selecting in, in the evolutionary mythology that many people in our culture are trying, trying to peddle, the, the he's not doing what we see in Genesis 1.28. You know what the God of the Bible does first? He blesses them. And this is keyed right in with this idea that God loves people, right? God is happy about his creation. He's happy about people, and he blesses them. And then the, the very first thing he says after that is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why would he say that? Because these people are made in his image. They bear his likeness. And when they are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, what they're going to do is make it where every corner of creation is occupied and reigned over by somebody who is supposed to be bringing to bear the character and the authority and the presence of the God whose image and likeness they bear everywhere. That's what, so God wants to fill the earth with his glory by people being fruitful and multiplying. That's the purpose. And then Satan introduces sin into the world, and it's like... It's like uh, there's this chess match between God and Satan. And, and Satan says, here's my move, God. I'm going to lead your people that are supposed to be your image bearers to rebel against you. I'm going to tempt them into sin. And God's response, he says, oh, yeah, Satan, well, here's my move. You see that woman right there? She's going to have a baby. That's how I'm going to respond to you. A baby is going to be born. God makes this promise about a seed of the woman that's going to bruise the serpent's head. And then the line of descent from that seed of the woman is traced all the way down to Jesus. And by means of the birth of the baby in the manger, the ruler of the world, the satanic power that's at work in the... He's cast out. He's overcome, overthrown. I think, I think these kinds of themes, this is what, in my view, this is what's going on in Psalm 8 when uh, David says... Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have ordained praise. This is how God shows his strength. This is how God opposes his enemies. He gives children to the world. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. And then it's ironic, isn't it? Because children, especially when they're born, they're babies, they're helpless. But look at how they're weaponized in verse 4. At least they're, they're spoken of with a, 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 a metaphor. A metaf they're spoken of metaphorically as weapons, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Why is this? Because this is how God does battle in the world. God does battle in the world by promising that the woman would have a child. And then by promising that a baby would be born to the house of David. That's how God goes to war against his archenemy, Satan. And it is just a simple reality that most people, most people in the world who are adherents of any religion are an, ad an adherent of that religion because their parents were. 
Most Christians in the world are Christians because their parents were Christians. So children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So the first thing I said in this sermon today about dads, get the Bible out and read, read it to your kids. You know, really what I'm saying to you is make your arrow a weapon worthy of being fired. Take care of that thing. Act like it's a weapon in the hand of the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Uh, I think this pertains to the line of descent that's going to culminate in Jesus, right? The Davidic line, the Davidic house. It also pertains to people in general. Because for this to work, for, for a man to fill his quiver with arrows, the poetry suggests that other things are going to have to be in place. This is going to, be, this is going to have to be a man who's a husband to his wife. We're not talking about an absent father. We're not talking about an absent husband who's so devoted to his vain and empty pursuits in, at work that he has no time, or he's so devoted to his, his selfish and sinful pleasures that he's got no time for his wife and kids. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a man whose kids are arrows in the hand of a warrior. That's a man who loves his wife. That's a man who's devoted to his kids. That's what we're talking about. So there, the, you know, the words of the poetry don't spell all that out. But in order for the poetry to work, that's all got to be in place, doesn't it? So there's a lot going on in Psalm 127. Um, this is all going to be fulfilled as Jesus, the temple builder, rises up to build the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Jesus said to his followers, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul says to the church in Corinth, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? You, Kenwood Baptist Church, and, and all churches that faithfully preach the gospel are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God being built up, 1 Peter 2, like living stones for the praise of God who inhabits the praises of his people. We are the temple that Jesus is building. We are the church that Jesus is building. So God keeps his promises. God is building the house. God kept his promises. He built a house for David. That line culminates in Jesus. And Jesus is doing his work in the world, building his kingdom. Let me give you three points of application flowing out of Psalm 127. First... And this is, connect, this, is, this is putting together Psalm 127 with 2 Samuel 7, right? And in 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build the, Lord, the Lord's house. And the Lord said, no, 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 David, I'm going to build your house. So here's my application for you. Because the Lord builds the house of those who are devoted to his house. You see what I'm saying there? David is devoted to the house of the Lord. The Lord builds David's house. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Here's how I think we should translate in that, that into our day. If you want to enjoy the blessing of God on your house, you should be supremely devoted to the kingdom, to the advancing of the kingdom in the life of the local church. That's what you should be supremely devoted to. 
If you, if you want God to build your house, if you don't want to be laboring in vain, you should be devoted to his house. And his house is the church through which the kingdom is being advanced. So I'm just going to ask the question, is that what your life looks like? And if the answer is no, what do you want? Do you want emptiness and vanity? Or do you want God building your house? Number two. This is flowing out of verse, two, verse 1b. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The Lord keeps the land that belongs to him. The Lord keeps the land that belongs to him. So how do you apply that? Well, I think you should consecrate your life to the Lord that he might be your keeper. This also keys us in. I forgot to mention this. This also keys us into Psalm 121, doesn't it? I've been noting how it's almost like Psalm 121 is like the paradigmatic psalm for these songs of ascent. The Lord is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand, right? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. He who keeps you. It's all over Psalm 121. He who keeps you will not slumber. He will neither slumber nor sleep. It goes again and again. The Lord is described as the keeper of his people in Psalm 121. The Lord keeps the land that belongs to him. You belong to him. Consider yourself as those who belong to the Lord. Consecrate your life to the Lord. Third, <laughs> behold the Lord's battle plan, right? Look at the Lord marching into battle. How's he doing it? Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Out of the mounts of babies and infants, he has ordained praise. Don't be distracted by appearances. Don't be distracted. You, you may think to yourself, man, I could exercise influence on Twitter. Man, I could really get some things. No, that is worth that. You talk about vanity, emptiness, triviality. If you, let your son, if you let those things keep you from your children, you will, have, you will be left with emptiness and regret at the end of all things. That's all you'll have. Behold the Lord's battle plan. I will raise up her seed, and he will bruise your head. Okay, Psalm 128. Another song of ascents. Song of, a song of ascents. I think what's happening in Psalm 128 is the truths of Psalm 127, the kind of house that the Lord is going to build. And here, I think what's happening is we're taking this maybe out of the realm of the temple and the Davidic dynasty and applying it to the people of God. So it's being particularized. What kind of house is the Lord going to build? Look at verse 1 of Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And the language of blessed is here should remind us of Psalm 1 because it's the same terminology in English and in Hebrew. Psalm 1, uh, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And now that, that specific statement about the individual is now generalized to everyone. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and as a result who walks in his ways. It's the fear of the Lord that makes you walk in God's ways. Uh, this, this reference to the fear of the Lord is in verse 1, and it's in verse 4. 
Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So those two references to fearing God are bracketing what comes between. So we got a unit in verses 1 through 4, and then we got a unit in verses 5 through 6. Um, after, the, after the initial statement, blessing those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways, what you have in verses 2 and 3 are descriptions of the enjoyment of the blessings of the covenant. This is why uh, I, I asked for Deuteronomy 28 to be read. If you remember Deuteronomy 28, it said, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. And if you were to keep reading in that passage and start reading about the curses of the covenant, um, one of the things that's going to happen is, um, Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb. Another thing that's going to happen the, to the kids as a result of the parents breaking the covenant is they'll be given to other people. They'll be carried away captive. They'll be enslaved. They'll be slain in battle when the enemy army comes and destroys the people. This actually can even be connected, I think, to Genesis 3.16. In pain you shall bring forth children. Right? But look at verse 2 here. Oh, oh sorry. I, I got these out of order. I'm not looking at my notes. That's what I get. Um, look, look at verse 3. We'll come back to verse 2. Look at verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. So the blessing of the covenant of having your children grow up around you this will be enjoyed if, verse 1, you fear the Lord. Verse 4, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now we'll go back to verse 2. Sorry for taking these out of order. I don't think it really affects things that much. Uh, the curse of the covenant is if you don't keep the covenant, enemies are going to eat the produce of your fields. Enemies are going to come in. They're going to take your land from you, and they're going to they're take your crops, and they're going to take your herds, and you won't enjoy the fruits of your labor. But look at verse 2. If you fear the Lord... You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Now, uh, to reinforce this, I want to take you through a number of statements in Ecclesiastes that all say the very same thing. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is asking this question. He's saying, uh, two, th Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 3, What is good for the children of man to do? What's good for man to do? And, and what he comes, the conclusion he arrives at again and again after he, after he traces out everything that's vanity, everything that's meaningless and futile, he says things like this, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon is saying... If you can enjoy your food and enjoy your work, that is God's gift to you to be able to do that. He says it again, chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He says it again in 322. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. That's what God gives him. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And then I want to take you there. I'm not going to go through all these, but let me read to you the one at the end of chapter 5. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink, 518, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For that, this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. The Bible is saying, 
God gives wealth and possessions, and God gives the ability to enjoy them. And then listen, listen to what he goes on to say right after this. Right, right after that in 5.19, he says, this is the gift of God. And then in 6.2, after saying in 6.1, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. 6.2, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. It is a gift of God to be able to enjoy what you have, to be content with what you have, and to be able to enjoy the good things that God gives you. This is the blessing that Psalm 128 verses 2 and 3 are talking about. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, Psalm 128, verse 2, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Gifts of God, and then it's a gift of God to be able to enjoy those gifts. It's a gift of God to be content with those gifts. And all of this is connected with the fear of the Lord, isn't it? And the fear of the Lord produces obedience, where does the fear of the Lord come from? Okay, uh, that takes me to, I'm going to give you three applications from Psalm, 28, Psalm 128. Here's the first one. Learn to fear God. Fear God. Where does it come from? I know of no better place for it to come from than meditation upon the, the truth of Scripture. If you want to fear God, you're going to have to let the Bible talk to you. If you want the Bible to talk to you, you're going to have to spend a lot of time with it. If you don't cultivate a relationship with the Lord that includes Bible study and prayer, you are not going to fear God. Because the world is telling you, you don't need to fear Him. The world is lying to you. The world is saying, He's not going to judge you. You're going to get away with it. You can go your own way. You can pursue your own pleasure. And if you want to see where that leads, you, you really ought to watch this testimony Maybe, maybe mainly talking to the adults in the room, from Rachel Den Hollander. One, way she, one, one place you can find it is on Denny's blog. You watch that testimony, it will put the fear of God into you. You should watch that testimony and you should think, one day there's going to be a judgment. One day I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of God. What is going to be said about me? Is it going to be testified about me that I took advantage of people and abused people and used people for my own gratification? Or is it going to be said about me that I feared God and that kept me from such wickedness? It's a sobering and, and fear-inducing testimony to see this woman speak righteousness in that courtroom. It'll put the fear of God into you. So, Application number one from Psalm 128, learn the fear of the Lord because God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. There is no escaping him. He is wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and he will enforce his standard. Application number two, verse four there, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. What's the man going to get? He's going to get the blessings of the covenant. Learn to satisfy yourself in the covenant. Learn to satisfy yourself in what God has promised to give to those who walk with him. So you should indulge yourself in the covenant, which we celebrate here at Kenwood all the time. 
And you should, you should cultivate desires for what God has promised. Satisfy yourself in the Lord and in what He gives. And then that brings us to verses 5 and 6, where we turn from description of what it looks like to fear God and the outcome of the fear of God to these prayer wish blessings. Verse 5, the Lord bless you from Zion. Zion evokes David, which, which, which it assumes the Davidic throne is established. The Davidic king is on that throne. The city is restored. And as, as God's purposes are realized in the world, may the Lord extend the blessing of all of God's goodness to you personally. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem. What's the prosperity of Jerusalem? Well, it's the Davidic king on the throne. It's, it's thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it is. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Literally, may you see the sons of your sons. Because they didn't get slain in battle. And they didn't get carried off captive and, and enslaved in exile. And they didn't die of mal malnutrition. Because the land has become like Eden. And because Yahweh is its keeper. May that be so for you. May you see the sons of your sons, your children's children. And when all this is realized, the, the last statement of verse 6 will be true as well. Peace, shalom on Israel. What God intends for his people is better than anything that we could devise for ourselves. Um, these, these blessings in Psalm 128, I think, are talking about the realization of the blessings of the covenant. And, and that takes our thoughts to the end of all things, right? This is what God is going to bring about. All of this goodness that we've, we've just enjoyed in Psalm 128. And the great thing about knowing God and walking with God is you can have a measure of that blessing now in your life. You can experience God's goodness. That's why this text is here for us now. It's not only pointing exclusively to the future. This psalm indicates that the best things about life here will continue to be enjoyed there in the age to come. They might be transfigured into a different key. We get some indications of that in the New Testament. We can talk about that at lunch if you want to. But the walk with God in the present time prepares for life in the age to come. And the enjoyment of God's blessings experienced now prepares us for the fullness in the resurrection. So here's my third application from Psalm 128. Pray for what God has promised which is really related to the first two, isn't it? The fear of God is going to prompt you to pray. And satisfying yourself in the covenant, this is what God has promised. So you pray for where, the, way, the way that you want to be satisfied in the covenant. And you should pray for the fear of God. You should pray that the Lord would make you mindful of the fact that He is infinite, which includes the fact that He is everywhere including those places where you find yourself when no one else is around. You should pray that God would cause you to fear him, that God would satisfy you in the morning with his steadfast love, with the blessings of the covenant, and that God would make you want what he has promised. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many things to thank you for. We can't even begin to enumerate them all.
Thank you for the way that Solomon served us in Psalm 127 and 128. Thank you for the way that you made these lavish promises from Genesis 3.15 to 2 Samuel 7. And thank you, Lord, for the way that you've brought everything to pass in Christ. Lord, the gospel is so much better than anything that we could have imagined. Cause us to want to repent of our sin. Cause us to understand in ever-increasing ways what it is that Christ has died for us, that you have raised him from the dead. And cause us, Lord, to be those who walk in a manner, as Paul says, that's worthy of the gospel. Lord, make us those who are blessed by you from Zion, who see the goodness of your kingdom all our days. Make us, Lord, those who see our sons' sons, our children's children. Because we fear you, because we obey you, and because we have passed on the faith to the rising generation. Lord, we love you, and we, we pray that all that we're doing here would not be in vain. So we're asking you to build the house, the church and our individual households. Lord, build them. And we're asking you to be our keeper. Keep us, Lord, in ways that we could never keep ourselves, we pray in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.